Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast, the show that brings together Michigan's top cannabis growers, advocates, and business owners to offer a fresh and honest perspective of Michigan's cannabis industry. Stick with us to get the lowdown from the people who have been on the ground floor of cannabis business in Michigan and gain insights into where the industry may be heading. Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast. I'm your host today, Kevin Pibus with True Cannabis, and today's episode is number 107. And today we have uh, a returning guest uh, from episode number 79. Uh, super excited to have on uh, Jason Crockett from uh, THC CBD Source. Jason, how's it going today? Uh, doing really well. Thanks for having me back on, Kevin. Fantastic. Of course, yeah. We're uh, very, very interested in, uh, in trying to get a handle on uh, what's going on with the market and and so uh, bringing in a guy that's that's super active in that role, um, I'm hoping to get a little bit of insight on what's going on, and I, I think it's going to be super helpful for myself and for our listeners. And so, uh, yeah, kind of excited to hear what you got to say uh, today. So um, thanks for coming on. Um, Tom, over at Relief, my co-host, how you doing, brother? Doing well, doing well. I know you guys are having some technical issues today, um, so uh, Jason and uh, and um, Tom will be sharing a, a camera and a microphone. It's going to be a little bit quieter today, but they're going to do their best to make sure that we get through this. And uh, yeah, so it should be all good. Oh, um, you guys get it this better? Yeah, Check we can it. hear you. It's just like I said, it's just a little quiet, but it's all good. We'll get it sorted out. Right. No big deal. Um, and then our, uh, our, our reoccurring uh, fifth or sixth time now in a row, uh, Nate Darling over at the headquarters. How's it going, buddy? It's going good. Had a busy day so far. Did a video shoot out, uh, out at the Liskey Barn and stuff. And so it was, a, it was a good time so far, but a little bit rainy out here, but excited to speak with uh, Jason today. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited to get over and check out the Liskey Barn. I haven't been there yet. And um, unfortunately, I'm going to be I'm going to have to miss the uh, the reception. But uh, I know that Redemption's probably going to be doing some events out there here in the near future. So uh, hoping to be able to uh, to get out there and check that place out. No, it's a beautiful location for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. Yeah, like I'd mentioned earlier, um, Jason Crockett from TV, THC CBD Source is our guest today. Um, we had him on episode seventy nine um, last year, and uh, we talked about uh, you know the, the fallout from Croptober and, and a couple other things there. Um, Jason uh, started here and grew up here in Michigan, and then and then went out to Colorado for a while, um, worked out there, and then uh, made his way back to Michigan. Uh, has been working here uh, for quite some time, um, and he, he owns. A, he's. I'm assuming, I think you're an owner, right, of THC CBD Source, and and you guys are are um, are uh, brokers. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have a couple things. I'm the CEO of THC CBD Source here in Michigan. I started it four years ago, and um, you know I have shares of a couple other things: outdoor grow, ethanol extraction lab. You know. Uh, just small shares in that, but really my main focus is my brokerage. Uh, I have about six independent uh, sales reps that work for me and work with other companies as well. So really, it's it's just a wonderful organic company. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny. You and I had similar paths because I grew up here in Michigan and then made my way to Colorado and and back out to uh, to Michigan. And and uh, you know, I, I remember talking to you about um, you know your move to Colorado and 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 having 
you know, that, that fear building up here of, of, you know, potentially getting caught and just wanting to get on to, the, to, to, a, to a market where, where it was legal and, and not have that, that fear. Um, now that you're back in Michigan and you've been operating in the, in the state world for a while and, and having this regulatory body overseeing um, our actions, are you, are you feeling relieved of that fear at this point? Um, yeah, you know, Michigan is amazing. Uh, I was really happy to come back when I saw it start to become legal and really less, uh, there was less fear, you know, coming back and starting my company here. But yeah, uh, I think Michigan's wonderful. Some of the regulations are interesting. Some of the rules are interesting uh, from what I'm used to, but it's nothing that we can't work through and make better. Uh, I think what really the state is not over complicating things. You know, in Denver every week, it seemed like there was a new regulation, something new you had to put on the labels. It was constantly, you know, ever changing. I think here in Michigan, there's, it's kind of getting a little bit of calcification, but uh, it seems to be, it seems to be working. You know, um, as we grow, I feel this state is just going to get better and better and better at what we do. And it just needs to be a little easier. I think we need to like make it less stringent for everybody. Yeah, no, I can agree with that 100%. I think that um, I still have a little bit of fear about um, not being fully aware of all the compliance issues. You know, it, it, I feel like that there's a, a miscommunication um, getting to the the operators. And I, and I think that's where my fear lies. But I did for the same reason you did. I want I was afraid of, of always the potential of getting my door kicked in and ending up in prison, you know, and so, you know, I advocated for these rules and, and, and wanted to see regulation, but I think that um, the red tape has gotten a little bit overboard at times. And I think it's time that we start to look at backing off on some of that stuff and, and getting to a, a, a place where it's easier to stay compliant and know what you're supposed to be doing. So I guess that's where my, my fear lies a little bit, but um, you know, we had you here last year and we talked a little bit about, uh, about Croptober and uh, we're getting kind of close to that, getting, working our way through the summer here. And, and I kind of wanted to see what, what you've seen now out in the field um, compared to last year. Um, I know we, we talked about last year kind of being the, the first real year of a, of a biomass harvest and, and now we're coming into year two. Um, what are you seeing uh, comparatively from, Last year to this year, you're seeing more plant counts and, and are people more prepared than they were last year? I, I think that that was a big issue that, that people didn't have uh, storage containers or dry ice or any kind of stuff lined up, you know, for their harvest. Are, are people getting in line with that now? Yeah, so I deal with about seven outdoor grows that I have under contract that I sell for. And from last year to this year, I got everyone to hold their product till this year and sell in the springtime right now. Uh, and then in the summer, you know, sell their flour to shells because stores need that $50 ounce specials or that two for hundred ounce specials. So a lot of the companies that I worked with last year that I'm working with this year, you know, really followed suit. They held on to their product, they kept it nice and we moved it all over the last like month and a half. And it worked really wonderfully for the dispensaries. So as, as that is, all of the grows that I worked with last year and this year are expanding to massive levels. You know, each of them usually did like one quarter of their acreage or a third of their acreage. And now they're expanding huge. So uh, we're still getting a lot of oil out of state. You know, a lot of oils coming in for a really cheap price and it's really flooding our market. So I really hope that stops because what that has done to our outdoor growers is forced them into remediation. So it forced them into taking their flour and not selling it as biomass and taking their flour, remediating it and selling it on, on shelves, right? Because no one's purchasing their biomass because by purchasing it and creating oil that's now selling on the market for like $2,200, you can't do it and it's not sustainable. 
like I said last year, you know, we should be able to sustain ourselves. But as we're allowing these these things to flood our market, it's really going to still be hard. But you know, everyone's learning and we're able to make flour out of it. So it's actually still helping the end user. It's just the biomass to oil has, has is really still not there yet. Yeah, you know, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, it's not helping these guys too, yeah. Right, I mean, that's the thing is we, we have remediated product on shelves that is not being labeled. And I, I do believe the consumer needs to at least know that the products that they're consuming have been remediated, you know, possibly for a reason. So, you know, but it would be nice to see most of the outdoor flour go to what it's actually grown for in Michigan, which would be, you know, for concentrates. But yeah, I guess so, so you're seeing an, an influx of, of distillate coming from out of state. You know, who's dropping the ball there? Yeah, and I, I you know, <laughs> I can't speak to that. You know, I can't say who or what or when or where, but it is happening. And who's dropping the ball is the state. Is, and it's hard for the state. It's hard for them to keep track of it. They just started getting caught up. You know, they're just starting to do inspections. They're just starting to be able to do the things they're supposed to be doing as the now CRA. So it's hard for them to be the police and the Gestapo and all that stuff, which Kevin, you saw in Colorado is, you know, they, they did surprise visits all the time. So you lived in a little bit more fear out there of, hey, I can't do anything wrong because they could just pop in and check my DVR. So here, no one's checking the 30-day DVR. So if you do something within or after that 30 days is over since you're in whatever you did, it'll never happen. You know, it, it didn't exist, you know. So if there's no record of it, it didn't exist. So I, I don't know how to fix that. It, it's just really on us as an industry uh, to, to, to police it ourselves and don't allow it. So... But, you know, like you said, Tom, with the remediated product, not all the grows remediate, you know, they do, they do R&D tests to, to make sure the product can pass first and then they'll remediate if they need to. So a lot of the grows grow really well and they do a really fine job outdoors and they don't need remediation. So I, I apologize for saying that. I don't, not everyone does that. Yeah, it's interesting because last year when we were talking about the the influx of illicit um, oils coming into the state, we were at uh, sixty five to eighty five hundred dollars a liter. Um, you had pro project or uh, had uh, uh, projected that we would that would go up, that we would possibly get up to the twelve thousand dollar liter prices, and that would be sustainable. Now we're down to twenty two hundred a liter, um, and we're talking about even more plants in the ground. Um, what what is the permanent resolve here, Jason? I mean, I understand that the that the the illicit market is having a huge effect, and I know that there has to be enforcement on that end. But um, as our growers continue to grow more and more plants with the excessive grower license and things like that, um, how how do you see that ever coming back? Well, um, it's going to be impossible for us to really. We can't grow it and make oil for that price. You know, if we're dealing with stuff that's coming from out of state, they're growing bigger plants, right? Their plants are averaging seven to 10 pounds where we're averaging two to five pounds. We're never going to be able to make the type of oil for the type of price that they can. So we need to get to a price point, which could be in the three to 4,000 range, which would, which would be like a three to $4 per gram to the, you know, the guys making the cartridges. But in this market, and you probably see this at your dispensaries, is people are selling stuff cheap, man. They're doing $4 cartridges, $5, $6 cartridges. Us as a state cannot do that. So we need to be able to get our oil and then get the cartridges at a wholesale rate 
which is sustainable. I mean, when you're getting stuff in for two grand, I mean, that's $2, that's a big difference. That's a, that goes from a $10 cartridge wholesale to an $8 cartridge wholesale. And if you have guys trying to do it right, they just cannot compete. So I don't know how to fix that. It's once again, it's up to us as an industry. And um, it's really tough. It's really tough. You know, we're in Michigan where a lot of people are very happy. We're making money and they're making decisions. And they're, you know, we're trying to get as much. A lot of people, I just are different mindset. They're trying to get as much cash as they can until it runs out. They're like, I need to make as much money now until I can't anymore. Well, what that does is it hurts the people like Tom. You know, Tom's a can of sewer craft grower and he's being lumped into some of these lower prices so it's forcing him into areas where he's just not comfortable with and it's horrible for i have i mean michigan i think grows the best weed in the in the country i haven't seen better weed but these guys that have wonderful wonderful product are having to be subject to this this market turn to cheaper cheaper product and it's really unfortunate yeah you know what i honestly crockett i think i saw the same thing in colorado happen i mean when we saw we were seeing people drop, you know, 2000 pounds on the market at $600 a pound and it would just bottom out the market. And I, I agree with you. I mean, like I'm in the same exact boat and I've been making this this debate with with different people trying to figure out what the what the resolve is. But, yeah, you, you you're growing a superior product and then you have to you have to price it at the price of mid grade, you know, chemically grown potentially remediated flour. I mean, it's just, it's absurdity. And um, what it, I think it did in Colorado, what I saw was, is it, it, it made people um, cheapen the, their input cost. You know, that they, they went, everybody went to salts, um, you know, and I, I think that you saw an overall decline in, in, the, in, the, in the product there. And I, I think my fear is, is that's what's gonna happen here because, I, and I think it's important for the regulatory body to understand that right now is not, what we're, where we're at is not sustainable. This is a market where people are surviving and surviving barely, and there's a lot of people going out. And if it continues at this pace where we're at right now, we're going to have a, a market that implodes, and it's it's not going it, to the black market's going to come back in and take back over, and this is just going to be a, a total shit show. Um, but yeah, I mean, there has to be some re resolve there. Um, moving on to a different topic, Crockett. Um, what are you seeing out in the field? What strains are hot? What products are hot coming in into 2022? Um, you know, I know our, our listeners are always trying to figure out what the next newest thing is and, and just curious if you're seeing any, any strains out there that are, that are super hot. Yeah. Um, and that's ever changing. That's, that's something that people need to be in front of all the time, you know, popping seeds. These guys are pheno hunting, you know, really right now. And there's a lot of the really good guys are constantly pheno hunting and trying to be in front of the game. So what's hot today will, you know, by the time it really hits the market, won't be hot anymore. Everyone will have it. So, um, I mean, Wonka bars right now is testing between 29 and 35%. That's a wonderful strain. I know Endo Vibe grows it and then they sell it out of their place in Adrian. Uh, that stuff is wonderful. Um, I have a couple other grows that are growing some really high-end phenote strains. You know, you're seeing like, gosh, I can't remember all the names. Uh, I know, uh, what is it? Uh, I think you're going into the, is it fat as fuck or what is it? Fire, fire as fuck. That one's good. It starts with a P it's, you know, fire is be like P-H-U-C-K. Uh, that stuff's really good. A lot of the limes, you're starting to see a lot of the uh, lemonine, limonene uh, type of strains coming out. So like the Tahiti lime, you know, they're doing uh, lime GMO. They're doing a black cherry GMO. I think honestly, if I kind of 
round this out. All the GMO crosses, I think, are the best things right now. If you can cross GMO with anything, it's really well, good. Because we live in a THC-driven mindset in the market. So that's <clears throat> exactly what we did. We take every GMO cross we have. Okay, yeah. that's what we got to do. And we're just going to do that. We'll find the best ones and, and move on. I mean, GMO is a great strain, but, you know, everyone looking at THC, that kind of really pigeons, pigeonholes um, your options for, for strain and variety, right? So, uh, but yeah, the, the GMO crosses, the Tahiti line, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a pretty a, a pretty unique strain there. Yeah, and that's going to be lower potency and high terps. And, I, and you're starting to see with the dispensaries, because I deal with, you know, over 200 dispensaries, is you're starting to see them selling on terpenes. So actually when I'm sending my menus, I'm not just sending potencies, I'm sending terpene profiles now. I think from when we talked last year to the, you know, we're, we're, once again, we're in a commodities business, you know, getting to us, getting to the butt tender, getting to the, per, you know, getting to the commodity, the buyer, that translation of what is a good product, I think we're getting a little better. And you may see this in your dispensary as well. If the bud tender understands the terpenes and understands what the plant is, and, you know, you're having people give them a lot of data on the crosses, what it can actually do. As your bud tenders are more educated, you're starting to see the, the you know, the Michigan buyers more educated. So I think, you know, a Tahiti, uh, Lime or any of those that are testing at say 21%, but at 4% Terps, I think will blow you away more than that 30% GMO Blackberry. I mean, I love it. Yeah, well, it's different, you know, and that's just the thing, man. What, what do you, how do you feel like this whole idea of allow, you know, forcing everyone to prepack? How, how, how do you think that'll affect you know, people actually looking at terpenes and like, well, you can tell them about terpenes, but you can't educate them about them if they can't smell it. Is that, I mean, are they forced? No, there was a, there was a hearing. Yeah, but it did about, no, nope, yeah. not for now. But I guess if you keep your, take your eye off the ball, they're always going to try it some other way. Yeah. Well, right. I, I know because I get called from all kinds of companies that need my help to move their product or help them with their launches of things. So actually a couple big companies called me when they saw that this prepacking thing would happen. And they're like, we already have a building. We already have the, you know, everything in line, you know, just start sending your clients to us. So, you, you know, cause they were trying to force everyone to, if you want to prepack to these, these hubs that would prepack it out. And it was almost like a licensing agreement. I think that that would be ridiculous. I, I honestly think that that would be the worst thing ever because the biggest reason will be if the product's grown at Tom's, he sent it to a prepacking. By the time it gets to you know your place, it's it's weeks. You know the product's just not going to be as good. It degrades over time, and if it's not being held properly, and if this place that's doing the prepacking is not burping your product or take care of your product, and that's what I told him. I was like, if you do this. You may want to do a contract with these guys, making sure that that product, when it leaves your building, is as good or better than when they dropped it off. Because if it leaves their building and there's something wrong with it or if it gets bad, that reflects on them, not you. So I think that the whole thing just would not make any sense. But also pigeonholes who can actually sell now. I mean, a lot of places are set up for deli style. They like deli style. And most of their customers that go there, they go there because they like that. They want to see it. They want to touch it. That's what I want to do. You know, I would... you know, when I went to Colorado for the first time and I bought pre-packs, you know, I felt like I was getting a bait and switch. You know, I would look at the flower, then they pre-pack and I send it out and I get it out to wherever, however I was, you know, driving. And I'm like, this is not even what I purchased. So deli style for me, and I think for the, the, the affluent consumer is the only way to go. I love it.
Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the the hub packagers, and it reminds me when we were drafting the legislation for medical um, that the uh, the Alcohol Distributors Association wanted to take charge of distribution, and they wanted to actually house the marijuana at their warehouses and and then distribute it as they pl- as they pleased. And it was just a ridiculous notion, like you said. How are you? How how is Tom's weed that sat in a warehouse for a month and then shipped to somewhere else and packaged somewhere? How is that still Tom's weed when it gets to somebody? I mean, it's not. I mean, we all know about storage and curing and and uh, and trying to keep that product from degrading over time and and not having any control over that. I mean, that's just absurdity to me. You know, the the testing labs had told us before that you know ninety percent of uh, bacteria and molds happen after harvest. So you know, it's the most important time to have fresh product get to your consumer and uh, and they want to delay that by having these different processes. But uh, I just wanted to make that point. I know Nate had a question. You know, absolutely. So I have a, a couple questions here. Um, so a lot of times, so I, I will kind of casually bud tend on the weekend um, over at Local Roots in Langsburg. And a lot of, and I see it every single time I'm there, there's this constant tug of war between speed of transaction versus education, right? And it all filters into this you know, the myth of THC percentage and everything there. And it, to me, it's like this arms race that's like this like arms race that's just keeps imploding, imploding, imploding and inflating. You know, where does, how does the arms race end? Does it end? And in a, you know, I think in Michigan, I went down to Canacon um, in Detroit and they were talking about how to, there was one presentation where they spoke about how to, you know, improve your retail experience and do all these amazing things and do all these wonderful things. And of course they showed all these beautiful locations in Colorado, California, and all these, you know, amazing experience driven places. But, you know, time and time again in Michigan, I see Michiganders, they're, some of them want the experience and some of them want like the most optimized, give me my product and leave me alone and let me get out of here. So when brands are constantly fighting THC, fighting, you know, to have to have high THC numbers and having consumers that are demanding high THC numbers and, you know, you know, issues like that, how do you advise brands that um, are growing, you know, amazing flower and are being forced into this position where they have to compete in this way? Is there an option to compete on value or is it purely just you have to play the arms race and who, who will survive who will survive you know yeah so i think that's uh it's a bigger question um you know and your your, your question's fantastic but what it is is now you're dealing with location as well right so yeah. if you're in just say detroit ferndale uh you know Berkeley or wherever, some of these places that are really turn and burn places, education is not the key, right? It's inexpensive, pre-rolls, you know, cheap ounces. They don't care. They see potency, they see inexpensive. And they're and, it, and those are turn and burn places. If you're trying to educate a consumer coming into your location, it's not the right place. But if you're at, say, uh, you know, dune grass up here, you know, they have more time to be able to educate. The people that come into their locations are looking for education. They're looking to see what is the best they want to hear. And then once you educate someone that comes in, they don't need education every time, right? If you're doing the right thing on your POS, you're saying Johnny came in, bought the Tahiti line. You know, when next time he comes in, when Johnny comes in, you say, boom, oh, you bought the Tahiti line. How did you like it? Love it. That's all you need to say. Or, hey, it didn't do it. Now you know where to push them. I think you know, the first visit should take time and business owners should understand that. And then if you calculate that, say you have four 
registers. You need to average three minutes, you know, per transaction, which most of them are closer to seven to 10. You know, that's what the business owner is looking at. But, you know, the consumer doesn't want to be rushed. So I think it's just, as I said, it depends on where you're buying, who you're buying from and what location you're purchasing from. Most people don't care. You know, if you are in Detroit, you know, they want pre-rolls, cheap, you know, $3 pre-rolls. You know, if they have a coupon, they want a coupon. Like you were saying earlier, Kevin, you know, these guys just want discounts and they'll hunt for them. So, but once again, with dune grass and places like that, people go there for an experience. They go there to get the best product. They're willing to pay a better price. And there are a lot of companies like that across the state. So it's just, once again, as the as we grow as a business, and as these dispensaries are around for a little longer, they'll start to you know generate their clientele based on who they are and what people want. And it happens in, in Colorado. Colorado was crazy. You could go down uh, you know, the Green Mile and there were five dispensaries in a row and each one of them were completely different. You could go into each one and they would have a completely different clientele. So I feel we'll get there here as well. You can have a place right next to each other with have two totally different types of people going in, but they're in the exact same street. So. I, I think, you know, that's a fantastic answer. I really appreciate that. And I have a quick follow-up. Um, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while now, kind of working with the young professionals group as well is what does the, what does what problems do the uh, lack of a standardized bud, bud tender level of education cause in the industry? You know, it's we think about if you want to be a barber, you want to be a tattoo artist, you want to do all these other things and you have to go through certifications, you have to go through programs, you have to demonstrate that I have a baseline of knowledge that I can at least talk effectively about this. There's none of that in Michigan. You can be a bud tender and you could be working at Target and tomorrow you're a bud tender now. Maybe you never consumed cannabis in your life and someone comes in and says, I'd like my sativa gummies. And you're like, these will absolutely give you sativa effects in this gummy. And it's it's kind of a massive problem because I know that there's a lot of bud tenders that want to make this their entire life. They want to make this their career. They want to grow and develop and, you know, kind of move up the chain slowly but surely. And a lot of those individuals may have not had a college education. Maybe they don't, they didn't want, you know, 80 grand in student loans and they want to do this, but the lack of a standardized, you know, Michigan certification for bud tender education where we can say, Hey, every store is going to have its own experience. Every store is going to have its own thing, but at least we're all playing with the same deck of cards when we're talking about stuff. And then the tug of war of THC percentage versus terpenes versus other thing. I've, if I look at this at the frontline people actually moving this product, that lack of a standardized, we're at least using the same vocabulary. Um, what problems do you think that's caused in the industry? What problems do you think it will cause? Well, you know, any sort of licensing that you're talking about, we can't do that because then they're going to have to do some sort of licensing. Then we're going to have to create a licensing regulatory. They'd have to be a part of Lara. Like we would have to have Lara create a bud tender licensing, which I don't think we're going to do. I think it falls on the uh, dispensary owner. I was in the restaurant industry for a long time. And before I was able to sell at the restaurant, I had to memorize the menu. I had to take a test. I had to meet with the chef because I worked at really high end places. So I had to meet with the chef. I had to tell him what the sauces were. I, I mean, it was really stringent what I had to go through to even get on the floor. So I think it's up to the, the dispensaries to educate their bud tenders before they go out because there's no other way that we can do it. You know, I don't know if it's that big of a stretch that the, the CRA, I mean, it is regulated under Laura. I don't think it's that far of a stretch to 
to do a bud tender. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I agree. I agree, Tom. They they already require you to do the serve safe for uh, edibles. So yeah, if I want to work at McDonald's, I still have to go to a three hour class and learn how to not contaminate food, right? And so I, I get at the same time we're seeing a big thing where you just have people that are just incredibly uneducated selling this product to someone who's well, maybe never used it before. Controls, if they, if, and if that person works for a company that controls the, um, the supply chain from its inception all the way to sale, and they're directing the narrative at the register, there's no, I mean, that's almost, it could be brainwashing if the person doesn't even understand some basic concepts of cannabis. It's a, you know, that doesn't, it, it, it'd be nice to have standards, right? We, we work, you know, there's a lot of standards we discuss and, and we're held to standards, but they're not very clear on standards and it's a moving goalpost. And, you know, it, it'd be nice to see, to, to see some kind of, you know, leveling of the playing field, at least at the, at the register. So people do, do come you know, prepared. So even if, even if a company culture type atmosphere um, with, with knowledge and how they interpret THC results and things of that nature um, is, is there, if, you know, if somebody works, starts to work for a place like that, at least they would have a base knowledge that is standardized by the state to, you know, for them to have, to, to come equipped. So if there's anything being, you know, pushed or, or things being said or narratives being created that are true to that, at least they would know that it is not true. Maybe they can do something about it. Maybe they can. I don't know. We're, we're talking about hypothetic land, but at least it would be a really, it'd be a really good start. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, yeah, well, well said, Tom. And, you know, I, I wasn't saying it's impossible. I'm just saying someone has to do it. Who's going to do it? And what? who's going to sure. create the curriculum and who's going to build this program? And then it, and it, and it also has to be simple because we're not dealing with we're not dealing with CEOs. You know, we're dealing with the with the employees and the salespeople. But um, there are things that we can do as sellers, too, as the wholesalers, the guys that are wholesaling their product. I, I notice this a lot because I do so many transactions a week with so many companies that I sell for. I'm like, you need to send your whole list of strains, even if you sold them three, send your whole list of strains, send them the... Uh, the phenotypes, you know, what's the breakdown? What is the potencies? You know, what are the desired effects? And I would send that in a folder every time because people are just sending their flour to these locations and then they're getting it to the butt tender. Butt tender's like, what is Tahiti lime? Well, wouldn't it be nice if they had a folder that said everything that was in it, say the Tahiti lime is mixed with this and this, it has this type of effect. I feel, I don't, I'm not getting that. I see a lot of people don't even send their invoices. They don't send information on their product to the to end user. And I know some companies I sell to, because I do a lot of large wholesale deals with companies that have multiple locations. They send their stuff to central hubs and then it gets distributed out. But if you can get your information to the buyer, to the guy who can get it to all the bud tenders, that's huge because they have to create the labels. They have to put everything on the flower. They don't necessarily need to say, hey, this is from Real Leaf, but unless you have that type of deal, but they do need to have information on the product. And what's happening, the bud tenders are getting these th things in. They don't even know what it is. They have no idea anything about it. So they're just blindly selling on price and THC. You know, and you had, Nate, you had mentioned gummies, you know, gummy sativa. That, you can't sell a gummy sativa unless you actually have real plant-derived terpenes in it that give you a sativa psychoactive effect. You know, just doing a distillate gummy, you can put indica sativa or hybrid on it all day, but it, it, there is no, it's just THC. So people are selling cartridges that way, gummies that way, everything, and the consumer's just buying this indica thing that's not even indica. So it's a, it's it, a huge problem. It is huge. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just, my buddy uh, got a 10 milligram gummy from a friend of his uh, that was from a dispensary and it, uh, it had caffeine in it, but it was labeled as uh, sativa. And so he called me after, you know, the next day or whatever. And he was like, dude, that gummy, he's like, it, it really was sativa. It got me really like energized. And I'm like, dude, that was the caffeine for sure. There absolutely is no difference between the distillate and that and the distillate and the indica. You know what I mean? It's just not not a, not a thing, you know? So, Nate, did you have something you wanted to say? Sorry. Oh, you know, I mean, all good stuff. And it's just, it's, you know, as a marketing person, I can comfortably say it's marketing bullshit on most of this stuff. And that's, you know, and I, and I take that with a little bit of humor, but no, I mean, it really legitimately is. And I, even have people when I'm budding, they'll fight me on it. They'll be like, no, I, I want my sativa distillate gummy. Like I, I clearly want this, you know, and you have to have this really weird conversation that you're just like I, I don't know if i can fight you on this right now the exhaustion and you know i one thing that i thought was really interesting just to kind of you know close on everything i was saying was i had a conversation with a young bud tender that works with a very one of the largest you know uh chains in michigan and um they were an incredibly you know passionate you know individual who wanted the education wanted to do things right but was 100 percent working for a company that fought against that and I proposed the question, I said, I don't think your company wants an educated customer base. And they said, well, why not? It's good for them. I said, I don't think they make money on an educated customer base. I don't think they want those conversations. I don't think they want those questions. I think they want optimized people that are coming in, buying their sativa distillate gummies and getting out. And it was just kind of an interesting thing to see someone who was trying to do the right things, trying to grow and develop as an individual, as a professional, but is constantly in a position where, you know, everything's just turn and burn and get people in and out. Right. So I think it's for me that like bud tender issue that you guys highlighted and, you know, the, the lack of education there, it's caught, it's perpetuating, it's continuing the arms race of like bullshit myths about THC percentage, but great, great answers on everything. I think that, you know, just to, just for two seconds, I think that that bud tender needs to work for another company because, you know, if you're a fine dining, let's go to waiting tables. If you're a fine dining waiter that knows everything about the menu, then you go and work for a brew pub. You know, you're if you're or trying McDonald's. to, yeah, you're, or McDonald's, or whatever. And you're trying to say, hey, the sauce is made with this and this. They don't care. So, you know, you, that person should go to a place that is pushing you know, education, pushing that finer thing. So that butt tender will, I guarantee can get a job at another place that would want that type of worker because I think they're spinning their wheels. So last last two second follow up on that because this is something that I've, I've been really thinking about a lot this week. Um, I'm of the opinion that if there was some kind of certification or well, some kind of accreditation that a butt tender should be compensated more for having that. Even because it's probably not going to be mandatory, but if there was an if there was a universally created thing in Michigan that was maybe through a college or something or sponsored there, and a bud tender said, "Hey, I went through this program. Um, it wasn't a twelve week class. Maybe it was an eight hour program. And it was fifty bucks to do it or something. I have this thing now. It's been universally accepted in Michigan as a good thing. I'd like to come in at a higher hourly rate because I have demonstrated already that I have the space knowledge." A thing for me is I think it's a it's an opportunity for bud tenders to use it to potentially negotiate to a better position because if everybody's going to be at the same level, who cares who has the same who cares has what kind of who cares what kind of education each individual has, right? So that's a bit of a wider question. I don't want to go on a tangent, but just some important things that I think help perpetuate these myths and problems. Yeah, fantastic. We just need to find someone to do it. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> yep. And I know you guys are, you guys are amazing. I know you guys have your finger on the pulse. So if anything's gonna get done, it's gonna be done with this group and the people who listen. 
So, Crack, we are getting a little close on time, but I did have a, a final question for you, and I I, I don't want to pry into your business too much because I know uh, some of your stuff's, uh, uh that, you, that you do is, is kind of kept, kept close to your chest. But um, in these tough times, um, these growers, including myself and Tom, you know, um, we, we're, we're out trying to, to beat the streets and, and trump up business. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time traveling across the state, dropping off samples to different dispensaries and things like that. And, and just recently, I've come to the realization that my samples aren't getting to the people that need to be getting the samples. Um, are you seeing that a lot in the field? And, and really, what is your advice to people that are out trying to drum up business in this tough time? Uh, how to get to the people that need, need to be making the decisions, I guess. Well, I have a good story. So when I was meeting with a lot of my clients in Denver, you know, I, I had this one com company that would purchase from me and I would go in their back room and they had a massive table where it was just full of samples and he and they did they couldn't even get to it like <laughs> literally they'd be high for a month just from that table and he's like Crockett I get this every day I get people dropping off every day so I think what the problem is is I think they're just over overran with product and then if you're getting it to this one place he was like Crockett take whatever you want we can't even you know so I was just kind of picking cartridges and it was fun but the point is is that's what's starting to happen here. You know, last year it wasn't like that. And we were still kind of in a supply demand. Everything was kind of going together. Now we have oversupply, you know, then we have demand. So you're, it's gonna be constant. So my only, my only suggestion is, I don't think samples are the best thing to do yet. I think you need to find who the buyer is, the business owner, they need to like you because your product is great, but there's a lot of other product that's great. People buy from people. They don't buy products for products. So um, like Redemption, you know, they love you guys. That's why they buy you guys. You guys do a great job, but they buy because they know you and they know Ryan and they know these people. That's who they're buying from. Like even for me, uh, I sell to people because they buy from me and they tell us like Crockett, I want to take care of you. I'm going to buy from you. You know, they can buy from anyone. And when I was in Denver, it's the same thing. I was selling trim for 400 bucks a pound out there and people would buy from me and they're like, I get calls every day for trim, but I'm buying from you. And they, they would make that point is that they like you they, and they can get product anywhere. So anyone trying to sell, I would do a lot of reconnaissance before I dropped off a, a, a sample. I would make sure I knew who was there, when they were there, who to talk to. So when I came in, I talked to the right person. I don't just drop anything off. I'm like, if I was selling you, Kevin, I would know who you were and I would know when you're, when, what your schedule is. And people are open to that information. Oh, who's the buyer? Kevin. Oh, when's he going to be there? Oh, he's usually here on Tuesdays from 12 to two. And I would go, okay, well, they're busy at 12. I'll stop by, you know? So. That's just sales 101. You got to make sure that it gets into the right hands. No, I think that that's great advice. And, um, you know, to further that point, um, you know, I've even had situations where I've dropped off flour specifically for an individual. It's been labeled, all of that jazz, and it's still not made it to the individual. So I think that um, making sure that you get a face to face with that person is ultra important to uh, building that relationship like you talked about, because, uh, yeah, you're right. There are a million people out there. There's a million different samples out there. And uh, yeah, ultra competitive at this point. So yeah, um, need a program to get all that excess into the right hands of people that need it, people with medical conditions that require it, all that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We were talking about that a few weeks ago with the testing as well. There's all that extra weed that could be going to veterans or or to disabled people or people that can't afford uh, to buy flour that, that really, truly need it. So I, I agree, Tom. Yeah. 
yeah, maybe the dispensaries that get all that bulk in, they maybe have a bulk bin for veterans or a bulk bin for people who can't afford it. And that's up to the dispensary owner to say, hey, and they don't market it to everyone. They know the people that need help. And they could say, hey, I have some samples. I have a goodie bag for you. And that would be really effective. And I think that would be something the dispensary should do. And I think it would draw, draw more business for them. I can um, say with 100% certainty, you guys aren't the only people that feel that way. Um, I'm working with some veterans in the cannabis industry that feel strongly about that as well um, currently. And I would love to see an option where there is that excess product. And um, I know uh, Anton Harb Jr. over with the FOB 1620 uh, podcast is they are actively trying to work on creating a compassion project and do a bit of a, a beta test with uh, you know, vetted veterans essentially that are getting this for the right reasons and stuff and people aren't just trying to get free product. Um, so I think that's absolutely yeah, just a disabilities. Yeah, just any disabilities. Yeah. yeah. No, hundred percent. Well, and I think it's interesting that you guys mentioned on sales 101 and it's it's always interesting. I kind of like a macro level to look at an entirely new industry of salespeople. And some people think, oh, here, I'll just tell them this is my fire weed and I'll drop this off and they'll buy, you know, 20 pounds. And you're seeing some really talented, even young people out there who are moving and shaking in ways they probably never would have been able to before because they're understanding how that you said people buy from people take that person out to lunch, understand what there is, you know, remember their, you know, favorite hobby or vacation or something like that. And that shit matters and it translates into sales. Everybody's got fireweed. Everybody's got the best products in the world. Who do they want to work with? And it's just going to get crazier. It's not, it's not going to get any, every year for the next three years, guys, you'll see companies pop out. You'll see like 10, 15, 20 companies every year that you've never heard of. When I left Denver, from what I remember at the Sensi nights, the first nights, to the last one I went to, about 50% of the companies, I had no idea who they were. And it was wild because all the people that were the OGs like us were like, who are these guys? So you're gonna see that here in Michigan over and over and over again, because people are gonna beta test their product here. So it's just gonna get crazier. Yeah, I agree. It's it's uh, some crazy times, man. And, and hopefully uh, everybody can, you know, uh, find their wings and, and find their path and, and, and make it through you know these tough times it's it's going to be tough for people but if if you buck, buckle down and, and get get uh get lean and and uh yeah things hopefully will be all right but uh anyways we are uh, we are out of time i want to give uh nate and uh, tom and then uh jason a chance to say their goodbyes so uh nate you know huge thank you for jason coming out great conversation today about a lot of issues in the industry and um nothing's slowing down i think that's the you know the unifying thing nothing is slowing down and it's getting harder every single day so hopefully um we can support some of the best friends in the industry yeah i agree with that uh tom over at relief thanks for coming on man you're my boy yeah one of my, he is, you know, not just industry, but he's one of my friends. So no matter what happens in the world, Tom and I are going to be brothers for a long time. But I just want to say this. I know what we're saying is a little almost doom and gloomy. You know, we're trying to talk about the hard things. But I want everyone who is listening to this or everyone in the industry to always understand this is the greatest industry in the world. I don't know if anyone's done anything else. I love the people in this industry. I love, you know... I really, I was in real estate before. It was hard. People are trying to, you know, undercut you. This has been the greatest industry of my life. I've been in it for 12 years and this has been the best 12 years of my life for sure. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, 
Jason, it was great having you on the show once again. We appreciate you coming back. It's always been super insightful to hear your input. Um, like you said, you're out in the field way more than Tom or I or even Nate could be. Um, so we appreciate you coming on and, and also giving us a little bit of your secrets on how you uh, how you do things out there. So uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, that was uh, episode 107, uh, Jason Crockett with T- THC CBD Source. We appreciate everybody tuning in today and uh, we'll catch up with you next week. Later. The Smoke and Rope Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ryan Basor, the owner of Redemption Cannabis. Have ideas for episode topics or would like to be a guest on the show? Contact us at ryanb at redemptioncanna.com. Thanks for being along for the journey.